Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 67, Louis XVIII. This episode is sponsored by NapoleonicImpressions.com. Please check out their website for unique gifts and souvenirs inspired by the Napoleonic Wars. Again, it's NapoleonicImpressions.com. Now, on with the show. Joined once again by a very, 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 very special guest, Emmanuel Dubois of the Lafayette We Are Here podcast. Hello, Emmanuel. Good evening, John. Yeah, thanks for joining me. You're most welcome. Happy to be here. Yeah, those of you who don't know, uh, Emmanuel has a lovely podcast that I do listen to frequently. Uh, Lafayette We Are Here, uh, which you can find on Twitter or on um, his website. And... Could you kind of give us a quick sketch of what the podcast is about again? Sure. So my motto is a French history podcast by a Frenchman. So my goal is to talk about French history, pretty much any subject, and through a French perspective. So, for example, my last episode was on uh, New France, the Nouvelle France, so the French colonization of North America and to talk about the importance of it and through French eyes, not through the British point of view, for example, which is the point of view Americans often get when they talk mm-hmm. about French history. Mm-hmm. So I try to bring this. Uh, I, will, I did episodes on any period from Charlemagne to, of course, Napoleon. I could not miss that guy. And um, <laughs> I, did, I did Charles de Gaulle. I did uh, French Indochina. Any, any subject is uh, appropriate any time period and of course you get a bonus with me you get french names and places pronounced properly (laughs) right for those of uh, my listeners who've heard me pronounce french names or places sometimes i I screw those up so i'm glad (laughs) you do a good job (laughs) thank you my friend thank you thank you um but i'm glad emmanuel's on the call um like i said uh follow him uh lafayette pod on twitter or his website uh, but I highly recommend you listen to his episodes. There's a great one on De Gaulle, which I was blown away by. Uh, but he's, I mean, there's just a ton of content there. Uh, the history of France, 2000 years. Uh, and I think he did it in 40 minutes or 50 minutes. That was great. Um, so there's just a lot of good stuff on there that that's worth listening to. Thank you, John. Yeah, indeed. Speaking of important figures in French history, People always know who came before Napoleon because that was the French Revolution. Louis XVI lost its head, Marie Antoinette. But not a lot of people know who came after Napoleon. So who are we going to talk about tonight? Louis XVIII. Louis XVIII, right. And I thought it'd be interesting because you kind of just, all you really hear about him is that, you know, he was this fat guy who took over for Napoleon and Napoleon came back from Elba and overthrew him. But I, I think there was more to him than that. There is. And there is also more to, I would say, his entourage. Yeah. Yeah. His uh, royals that advised him. Yeah, indeed. Yes. Well, let's dive in. Um, if you could pronounce his full name for me, I would be appreciative. Yes. Louis Stanislas Xavier. Was born in November 1755 in the Palace of Versailles outside of Paris. And he had two brothers who would also become king of France. What was their upbringing like? Obviously, somewhat privileged. Yes, so they they do grow up in Versailles, and they are actually Louis XV's grandchildren, not his children. Mm -hmm. So they receive a very formal education, as is to be expected in a royal family of the time. 
so even though their father was the Dauphin, the heir to the throne, he will die of tuberculosis in 1765. So therefore, he will never reign. Mm -hmm. So Louis de France, as he was known, uh, he gave his children a rather intellectual education, I would say. He was more cerebral than physical. He was also very pious, a lot more than his dad, actually. And he's also noted to be the first obese Bourbon, a trait that his sons will partly inherit, mm. especially the future Louis XVIII. So there is not just a matter of uh, lifestyle, I would say. It's apparently something maybe genetic. They, they tended to get fat easily. Mm -hmm. And that's something that will be very aggravating in a society where the average person struggles to feed themselves properly. Right. It's it's not going to be good PR, you know? Yeah. So I should also mention that the Dauphin Louis and his wife, Marie-Joseph de Saxony, the Sa uh, the the Saxony, the Sax, sorry, because English and French get mixed up. <laughs> uh, they have a big family, uh, eight children in total, five boys, three girls. Mm. So the first boy is Louis, uh, who died in 1761, and yep. the second son, Louis Auguste, became Dauphin in 1765, mm -hmm. and ultimately King Louis XVI in 1774. Mm. So Louis Stanislas, who is our subject today, he was born two years after Louis Auguste in 1755. Yeah. As you and Charles Philippe, the future Charles X, was born two years after 1757. And they also have sisters, uh, Marie Zephyrine, who died as a five-year-old. Clotilde, the future queen of Sardinia, uh, will die in 1802. And Elizabeth, who will die on the guillotine in 1794. Um, all this to say that they are raised in what could be characterized as a formal rather normal upbringing, given the rank in French society. And their formal education was actually provided by the Duc de la Vauguillon, mm -hmm. an old-fashioned French high noble. And what I find funny is that he called the four boys in his class, if you will, the four F, the letter F. <laughs> so the, I mean, and it was because of French names. So the firstborn, Louis, was Le Fin, or the clever. The second one, featured with the 16, was Le Faible, which means the weak one. Mm -hmm. The third, future Louis XVIII, was le faux, or the dishonest one. Mm -hmm. And the fourth, future Charles X, was le franc, or the frank one. And it's funny how accurate those statements prove to be in the long run. Yeah, and I was also thinking, you know, the Palace of Versailles was a somewhat new place, correct? Like, it hadn't been there very long. Uh, so, at this time, it's fairly new, yes. Yeah, so I wonder, like, them being raised out there away from Paris if that was the best thing or probably the worst thing, because they weren't really in touch with the everyday people. They were just surrounded by, you know, other aristocrats, correct? Yes. And it was all designed that way. You know, Louis XIV purposely designed Versailles to be away from the capital mm -hmm. because he feared revolution. Okay? Mm -hmm. He feared that. That's the main reason why he wanted to be away. Far enough that, you know, he would have some heads up if something happened in the capital. And close enough that, you know, it's 20, I think 20 kilometers away. So it's not mm -hmm. that far. Mm -hmm. You could go there if need be in a, in a few hours. But it's also true that as time went on, the French royal family was more and more disconnected from their people. Right. Because, you know, this system, when you have this, you have to understand that at the time, it's an absolute monarchy. That means that, in theory, the, the king has absolute power. Mm -hmm. And also, he is ordained by God. So he does not answer to the French people. He answers to God. Mm -hmm. To him, he, like there is God, there is him, and then there is everybody else. 
So he is above everybody else just by his birthright. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the big issues that the French people will have in 1789. <laughs> and we'll get to that. Uh, we're not quite there yet. Uh, however, in 1771, the future Louis XVIII marries Princess Maria of Savoie. Oddly enough, the obese Louis found his wife repulsive as it was an arranged marriage. His wife allegedly had poor personal hygiene. She never brushed her teeth or used any perfume. And the marriage remained childless. Louis had some poor diet choices and lack of exercise. We were talking about him being overweight earlier. Do you think this caused problems over the course of his reign? So I think it caused him to suffer publicly rather than privately, at least un until he was a bit older. So from what I've read, he actually very much respected his wife, even though he preferred the physical company of other women. Mm -hmm. And it's far from an ideal situation and certainly one that should be criticized. But it was far from uncommon for a prince to have mistresses and not to be faithful to their wives. Mm -hmm. It's a sad truth, but it is the truth. That said, uh, his overweight, that did grow, uh, did grow worse with age, and it was definitely a problem. Uh, as I mentioned, the average Frenchman of the day struggled to get proper meals. So being obese was unheard of in the third estate. You mm -hmm. didn't have any obese peasants. Uh, that just did not happen, or it was extremely rare. Right. Uh, and also you have to remember that the kings, they were supposed to be the guardians of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. So they considered themselves to be ordained by God, as I said. Yeah. And a descendant of a line of warriors. And indeed, many of their predecessors had been warrior kings. Mm -hmm. Even Louis XIV was sometimes a bit too close to the battlefield. And his brother Philippe was one of the best swordsmen in France during his lifetime. Mm -hmm. So these later Bourbons, they certainly broke that image of strong kings who could defend the realm against its foes. So it didn't help during the revolution and afterwards, especially when Napoleon came along. Right. I mean, Napoleon was the complete opposite. Of right. Them. Well, uh, he was and young and vigorous, well, at least till his later years. But yeah, Napoleon was this young, active guy. Yeah. And so were his marshals and his generals. I mean, those men were willing to work and to bleed for the country in a manner that the kings and princes would not do anymore. Mm -hmm. So in, again, in modern terms, it's a huge PR win for Bonaparte mm -hmm. and company versus the Bourbon. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, however, uh, in 1774, three years after his marriage, Louis XV dies of smallpox. Do you think either one of the brothers was adequately prepared to be king? Like, I know Louis XVI, they often complain he was too timid to be king. What do you think on that? Well, I think that Louis XVI was ready in terms of education, certainly, because his, you know, his father died when he was nine years old. Mm -hmm. Uh and, sorry, he died when he, nine years before that, and he'd been Dauphin. You know, he was next in line. Right. Uh, he was young. He was a good in good health, so there was no reason to doubt he would be king and probably for a long time. So the problem is, it was he would rather be elsewhere. <laughs> he, he was not a stupid man, but he yeah. did not have a strong enough character to be king, especially not an absolute monarch. He was a bit gullible, and indeed, you could say he was weak, but he was in a system that was an mm -hmm. inferno. Uh, he could have been great in many other situations, given the formal and thorough education he received. But he was, also, and he was also known to be very precise, very meticulous. But ruling over France, especially in this time period, it was just too much for the man. It was an ordeal, honestly. Yeah. And 
him or Rudy Athens, I, I don't think any man could have done really much better than them. Maybe a bit better, but in the long term, it was going to crash anyway. Yeah, like, well, we'll get to this, but I wouldn't want to be Louis the 18th following Napoleon. That'd be like following the Beatles at a concert. Like, it, you know, yeah, it's, there's no <laughs> way you could, you could do well in that role. Very tough act to follow. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, Louis Stanislaus, who we'll just call the future Louis the 18th, slid farther down the succession ladder after Louis the 16th had a son with his wife, Marie Antoinette, in 1785. I think it's kind of incredible that Louis the 18th actually became king because he probably was thinking at that point, all right, well, Louis the 16th has my brother as a kid. There's no way I'm going to be king at any point. Well, it's our circumstances, you know, but it's not rare in lines of succession. Mm -hmm. uh, French monarchs were often of elder sons of kings, but not always. Some were grandsons, great-grandsons, or even cousins. Mm -hmm. uh, François Ier, Francis I, was a cousin. Mm -hmm. Henry IV, the first Bourbon king, was not Henry III's son. He was also a relative. Mm -hmm. So it's not that incredible. It's just a matter of circumstances. But it is true with only a couple of years separating them, if the revolution had not happened, he most probably would not have ruled. Uh, we would have stayed in power for years, and his son was, would more, most probably be have been king later, or maybe the grandson. But it would have been the same line, most probably. Because I know he had two sons. One died uh, as a kid, mm -hmm. and his second son survived and at least until 1795. Yeah, I just, I, I'm thinking though, like, all right, it's 1785, my brother just had a son and it's not going to be another 30 years till I get to be king. And there's a guy named Napoleon in between. Like it just, it seems like a heck of a long shot that he would ever be king, but we'll get to that. Um, but it's, it's not an unheard of. No, agreed. Agreed. Uh, during this time before the French revolution, uh, the future Louis the 18th led a relaxed life, reading huge amounts of books and running up huge debts, <laughs> which his brother, the king would always pay for. What do you think his life was like before the French Revolution? It seems pretty easy. Yeah, the, the king's brothers, the ones we call monsieur, are often like that. Uh, for example, Louis XIV's brother, which I mentioned, also spent tons of money for his <laughs> entertainment. But it's a global phenomenon in the French monarchy at this point in time. You know, the king and his entourage are rather disconnected from the people's reality. And Louis Stanislas, future Louis XVIII, is part of that system. I would say that if he hadn't become king, it probably would have been forgotten by now, as nobody really cared about that kind of stuff. Uh, right. However, the king, and especially the queen's expenses, were under much more uh, close scrutiny, scrutiny yeah. and brought much more problems uh, on the House of Bourbon than Louis Stanislas' excessive expenses. Well, um, those expenses start to pile up. Also, the expenses from the uh, American Revolutionary War. Yep. That and, a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it did. Uh, thank you, though, for that. We appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 1789, the French Revolution began. And his brother, King Louis XVI, was very indecisive on how to handle it. Uh, nobles and aristocrats soon began to flee the country. Do you think there was any way Louis XVI could have kept his throne and his head? Well, it might have been. Uh, I will refer your listeners to my own episode on the Please. French Revolution yeah. to get more details yeah. um, about this. But here's the gist of it. So contrary to a popular belief, the French king was not guillotined 
right after the beginning of the revolution. Correct. Uh, right after we took the Bastille. No, that's not what happened. Yep. The French people actually wanted a constitutional monarchy, not a republic at the beginning. Mm -hmm. they, they believed in the figure of the king and they wanted to make it work just in a new way. Don't forget, this is a very old country. They've had kings for almost a millennia by then. I mean, mm -hmm. for a millennia by then. The, and the Capetians, which the Bourbons are, you could say, uh, descendants from, they've been around since the 8th century. So we're talking almost a thousand years with the same monarchy in place, which is, you know, you don't normally throw that away in a day. Right, right. So they... They want to make it work. The problem is that Louis XVI failed to make it work. And so did the convention, the French government at the time. So between 1789 and 1791, that relation between the French government and the king grows worse and worse. And the king has contacts with French émigrés and nobles who want to counter the revolution. They want to unmake it. So all this leads to the king attempting to flee France on June 20th, 1791, the famous mm -hmm. flight to Varennes. Varennes, yeah. But he is recognized on the road and arrested at, at Varennes. He was not heading for Varennes. He was just passing through, and that's where he got arrested. Hence mm -hmm. the name. He, so he's brought back to Paris on June 25th, and then it will just go worse and worse for him. A lesser-known fact is that on the same day that the king flees, his brother... Louis Stanislas also flees France, but okay. he makes it and he reaches Brussels where his other brother, Charles, awaits him. Mm. So that won't be the first time he flees to Belgium. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. I think uh, he, got a, he got a free pass for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Frequent flyer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but in 1792, the new French government declared that all emigres are traitors and that their property will be confiscated. So where does Louis go the next couple decades? I know he's in England at some point. Yeah, so he goes pretty much anywhere. Um, so he went to several places. He, he was trying at some point to mount an army to take back France from his these you know darn revolutionaries, but he never made it. He first went to the low countries, but mm -hmm. over the next few years, he will go to Verona in Italy, Dillingen in Germany, Warsaw in Poland, and other places uh, during the directorate and the concert period. Mm -hmm. Basically, anywhere a government and so or some powerful nobles could help him out. Mm -hmm. So he's not in place until he reaches eventually uh, Britain, which we come back later on. Yeah. So in 1793, as you mentioned, his brother Louis XVI, who was imprisoned, is actually executed by a guillotine, and his young son dies in prison, which puts Louis XVIII or the future Louis XVIII in the role of heir apparent. But he would have to wait a very long time before he got to sit on his throne, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so to be exact, um, Louis is guillotined in 1793, and Louis Stanislas proclaims himself regent for his nephew, who is imprisoned. Mm. So this child is recognized as Louis XVII by himself and by other monarchists. So that's when he dies in jail in 1795, like you said, that Louis Stanislas becomes the king's successor. And that's why he will be Louis XVIII and not seventeen, because technically... Louis XVI's son was king in terms of monarchical succession. Right. Because when his father dies, he becomes king automatically. You know, the king is dead, long live the king. It's automatic. There is no passage of power. It's just at the second he dies, his son becomes technically king. Right. 
Okay. But indeed, Louis XVIII has to wait a very long time before <laughs> becoming king. And it's the same logic, just apparently, is why Louis Napoleon Bonaparte will be Louis will be Napoleon the Third. It's because technically, in the Bonaparte succession line, Napoleon's son is Napoleon the Second. Correct. He never actually reigned. Right. Right. Yeah. And Napoleon the Third was his nephew, but still, yeah, yeah. he uses the, the name Napoleon. Yeah. And he recognized that line of succession. You know, yeah. He did it for political purposes, of course, but, you know, still, that's why he's the third and not the second. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, well, uh, seven years later, I guess, Louis Eighteenth is sick of waiting to get his throne. And he initiates uh, a letter writing correspondence with First Council Napoleon and asks him to restore the Bourbons to the throne. This is the first time and not the last time Louis would underestimate Napoleon and his ambition, isn't it? Yes, but I think in 1800, the whole of Europe underestimated Napoleon yeah. uh, during his first few years in power, at least until Austerlitz. I think they got the message at that moment. Um, <laughs> you know, being a successful general is one thing. Running a country, especially one that underwent a major revolution and years of warfare, is another. Yeah. So the, the concert period... Uh, nevertheless proved to be a small golden age for France, really. It's mostly peaceful, and the profound, re profound reforms and improvements spearheaded by Napoleon make France a very modern country at that time. And France, as it, did, as it is today, owes a lot to the constraint period. But people like um, Louis Stanislas, they see Napoleon as a grunt who got lucky, right? not as the bright man that he is. So yes, he tries to establish links with Napoleon and he tries to convince him to put the monarchy back in place. Yeah. So the idea is basically to reverse the clock to 1791 to have a constitutional monarchy. Well, I think you bring up a great point there. Um, a lot of the marshals, Napoleon's marshals, were very good generals. Uh, Massena was a good general, but that doesn't mean he was a good administrator. Uh, conversely, I think Marshal Marmont was a good administrator, but he wasn't a very good general. So... You know, Davu and maybe maybe Suchet. It's it's hard to to be good at both things. Yeah, there are very different things. And the problem is that men that are good in one tend to think they would be good in the other, but often fail dramatically. Right. Uh, Bonaparte was one of the few that could master both. I mean, as we all know, he went a bit overboard as the years went on. But yeah, he he certainly had the intellect for it. He had the talent for it. Uh, just you know, he could not tame his ambition. He never really considers doing what we ask of him. But he entertains the idea in a correspondence you know, with Louis Stanislas. I think he was playing with him. Or he was maybe tasting the waters to know what was going on outside of France, you know, the monarchy, the real circles, you know, wanted to yeah. know what was going on. He was a clever politician, which Louis Stanislas was not, at least not at this point. And the two men, I mean, they were just on, not on the same level, uh, yeah. at least in 1800. I would say that Louis XVIII did learn some politics uh, after I would say 1814, a bit before, but not not at this time period. He still think that he he should rule. And remember, we're talking about Napoleon at the beginning of his reign, before he's even emperor. 
Right. So that's when he's actually taking over France and solidifying his position. He's shrewd, determined, very bright, and very well advised. Louis is none of those things. Yeah. And I think he did not acknowledge the, how can I put it, the irreversible character of the French Revolution. But right. we'll circle back to that. Right. Yeah, we will come back to that. But yeah, you wonder, like, he's, you know, he's taking up residence in England. You know, is he involved in some of the plots on Napoleon's life? I know, you know, the British are and some of the other uh, monarchies in, in Europe are. But you wonder if uh, Louis was involved in those as well. Yeah, it was, from what I know, he was not involved in any direct attempt on Napoleon's life. Mm -hmm. I would, he would probably not have cried <laughs> if yeah, Napoleon yeah. Was, <laughs> was killed by the, right. uh, you know, the machine infernal, as we called it. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, no, as far as I know, the Bourbons were never, never ordered anything. Yeah. And I, I you know, and, you know, we'll, we'll jump ahead to March 1814, where the Allies finally conquered Paris. And I've read many things that, you know, they weren't sure who to put on the throne. I know, you know, after Napoleon's abdication, should they put Marshal Bernadotte on there? Should they have Louis on there? Like there was kind of like some indecision on who to put on the throne to replace Napoleon. Yeah, it was not a straightforward decision. Mm. The um, Because the, how can I put it? He, he carried an image of being weak and mostly useless. Is uh, the first choice of the Allies to be France king, but he's not the only one. Some considered Napoleon's son, the quote, king of Rome. Yep. Some thought of Eugène de Beauharnais. Uh, actually, he, they thought he would make a nice ruler. Prince Eugene. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but Talleyrand, he pushed for Louis XVIII. He wanted two things. He wanted continuity and he wanted control. Right. Uh, so, yeah, Louis having Louis XVIII would calm down other monarchies, being the legitimate king in their views, but he would be also widely dependent on his counselors. And Talleyrand, he re-wanted that. He re-wanted that. It, just to come back to what you said before, to put some context, you know, from 1804 to 1809, before mm -hmm. 1814, Napoleon basically defeats every power in Europe. Right. Sometimes, multiple times. Therefore, the French royalists, they, they see their numbers dwindle, and many actually join Bonaparte. I mean, he's emperor by now. He made France stronger than ever. So if you can beat him, join him. That right. was the reasoning of many at, the, right. at this point. So they figured that France's future was with Napoleon, not with the Bourbons. Mm -hmm. So Louis had less and less places to go in 1807, for example. Mm -hmm. Of course, we know, as we know, the core of Europe's resistance to Napoleon is England. So the British are Napoleon's nemesis. And right. Louis, he knows that. He knows it perfectly. So he goes in Essex, in the country of Buckingham, county of Buckingham, I mean. And the British government actually pays him a pension. And he leads a very comfortable life, about not on the same level as the one he had in Versailles as a young mm. man, but still, you know, he was not missing for anything. Yeah. And, and the British, they needed him. They needed him to be their legitimacy in France once okay. they defeated Napoleon. Because well, I just think that, you know, to gain your throne on the shoulders of foreign armies, it's not usually the best way to start a new government. No, that's true. And, you know, he, how can I put it? He did nothing. I mean, we'll go back to that a bit later, but he did nothing to, to put himself back on the throne. He was just coming along, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was just like in the baggage train of the conquering army. Like, here's here's your new king, France. Good luck. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there you go. Pretty much yeah. like that. Yeah. 
So, like I said, Napoleon abdicates uh, in April 1814. And as new ruler, Louis XVIII fails to endear himself to his new subjects. As often quoted, the Bourbons, quote, learn nothing and forgot nothing. But it's very hard to turn back the clock to pre-1789, isn't it? It's actually impossible to yeah. turn it uh, turn it back at this point. Uh, so the, the role is, they called him Le Désiré, which means the sought after one. So he's helped by his brother Charles and by Talleyrand and Fouché. Don't forget, this country has been at war for a couple of decades. Yeah, it's, it's bankrupt. It's in ruins, it's in tatters, it's yeah. occupied, yeah. and it's not an easy occupation. Yeah. I mean, the Prussians, I mean, I don't blame them, given what the French did to them yeah. in the yeah. years before that, but yep. they are very tough on the French people. Yeah. Uh, the British are a bit less aggressive, but still, these we're talking armies occupying a country. We're talking about over a million men occupying France at this, right, point, right. At this time. So it's not a good situation. And a relevant thing that happens, I think, is the Déclaration de Saint-Ouen, or the Saint-Ouen Declaration. So Louis is presented with a constitution. He rejects it, claiming that the authority of the king should not derive from the people, but from God. You know, still in 1814, he would say that. Right. So he claims that he doesn't want to reestablish the old regime, but also he doesn't want too much of the revolutionary ideas to survive. Yeah. So in June 1814, they reach a compromise with the what they call the Constitutional Charter, which establishes a limited monarchy, if you will. So it's not a constitutional monarchy, but it's not an absolute monarchy either. It's a compromise. Yeah. yeah. And we, he, I mean, he considers himself to be king since 1795, since his nephew died in prison. Right. So it's not to him. It's, he was not he just proclaimed king. He's been king for a couple of decades <laughs> I mean, in his mind. Right. So there is some concessions. I'll give him that, you know, liberty of the press. Yep. Liberty of religion. religion. Yep. Yeah. Even though Catholicism remain the state's religion. Yep. Um, and other things like that. And they also keep the empire's administrative apparatus because, I mean, frankly, it's just a lot more efficient than the old one. And nobody wants to go back to that. Even the most fervent royalists recognize that the advances made during the revolution and the, and, and the consulate were, were needed and badly needed for. Yeah. But I know the army is significantly downsized with many officers sent home yes. or put on half pay. Uh, and there's this guy off the coast of Italy named Napoleon kind of keeping his ear to the ground on what's happening in France. What do you think the main cause of their failure, the Bourbon's failure was King Louis XVIII and his court? It's a, it's a mix of things. But one of them is that they kept underestimating Napoleon. Mm -hmm. And in Louis and his court's mind, Napoleon is done. And it doesn't seem like uh, like he is because he, he thinks that Napoleon is not important anymore. That, you know, he was defeated militarily. Nobody would ever support him again. Right. I am the king. That's that. And because of that, Louis stops paying Napoleon his pension. Yeah, I read that, which is insane to me. Like, yeah, like, he had a pension. Uh, yeah, I think two million a year, right, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, given France GPD, if you will, at the time, it was not a huge sum to pay to basically keep him quiet. And right. honestly, if you pay that sum and if you leave him being emperor in uh, Alba, <laughs> you know, you know, maybe he wouldn't have never come back because, you know, Napoleon, even him, has his limits. But then when he stops paying, 
that provides him with an excuse right. to come back. And also, he knows, Napoleon knows, he has, you know, he has his sources that Louis XVIII is not popular. Right. So he, you know, I, I can see, you know, the wheel in his head turning. He probably thought about that a lot of sleepless nights, thinking what would happen if I come back? And Louis did not care about that. He's like, Napoleon is on Elba. It's not like he's going to hop on a boat and waltz back in the Tuileries Palace, <laughs> supported right. by the army that was sent to stop him. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> right, right. And all of his old marshals and generals have sworn loyalty to me. I have nothing to worry about. Yeah, exactly. And the point is, at this point, uh, though the revolution, the, many men thought that the revolution and even the empire were accidents, mm-hmm. big accidents for sure, but accidents nonetheless, and that France would find her way back to reasonable, old fashioned, traditional ways. That was not to be as the history of the rest of the 19th century would prove. Mm-hmm. And of course, the events of 1815 <laughs> are the perfect example for that. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. Uh, in February 1815, Napoleon escapes exile in Elba and returns to France with a small force, only about a thousand troops. And King Louis XVIII blithely sends his own forces to put down this uprising, but they all subsequently join Napoleon, which causes Louis to flee France yet again. If you were Louis, how would you have handled Napoleon's return differently? First thing, I would like to speak to the guy just for the sake of it. <laughs> Find me at Dorian to go back in time and talk five minutes with the with right. the man. Anyhow, in the hundred days period, it actually refers to the number of days that Napoleon, uh, that I mean, Louis XVIII is exiled from right. France during this period, from March the twentieth to June twenty second. It's not Napoleon's actual stay in power. It's Louis XVIII's exile. Mm-hmm. So Napoleon he lands in southern France and basically walks back to Paris. Army regiments are sent after him, but as you said, they're ready to his cause. Famously, on March 7th, soldiers from the 5th Regiment of Line Infantry face him. He gets in front of them, alone, mm-hmm. opens his coat, and yells, Soldiers of the 5th, recognize your emperor. If there is anyone who wants to kill me, here I am. And they don't sh- shoot. Mm-hmm. They shout, Vive l'Empereur! And they're ready to his cause. <laughs> and pretty much the entire army does the same, as do most of the generals and the marshals. Mm-hmm. So in front of that, Louis XVIII flees during the night of the 20th of March, and Napoleon enters the Tuileries Palace, which was a seat of the French government, or at least the French monarch, uh, the next day. So would, would have I done things differently? I don't know. I mean, he did the logical thing. He sent the army to capture him. What he did not understand was that the soldiers' royalty, uh, he did not understand how it worked, right. nor he, and he did not understand uh, Napoleon's aura either. Right. Napoleon was a warrior for all his faults and mistakes, and he made many of them. Right. He was like a warrior king, if you will. Right. And that brings tremendous power. Mm-hmm. Louis was a weakling in comparison. He mm-hmm. hadn't achieved anything, mm-hmm. and the French soldiers, they were very much aware of that. Yeah. So at that moment, when they had to choose, they chose the emperor. Because once he had the army on his side, Napoleon was able to take back France without firing a shot. Yeah. So that's impressive. And also, I think 
the army was defeated in 1814. It was humiliated, even even though you know, given the forces against them, yeah, it's not like they, you know, they they gave them a very you know Good they did chance. not surrender easy. Yeah. yeah, but yet you know they're still soldiers, so they want to they want a, a chance to fight back. Right, and they knew that Napoleon could bring them that chance, and that we would not. Right. Well, after the uh, 100-day period uh, and Napoleon's downfall at Waterloo, Louis returns to the throne and the Bourbons initiate a white terror to purge officers and officials who proclaim their loyalty to Louis but promptly switch sides to Napoleon. Do you think this was a necessary evil? Well, the realists, you know, they were out for blood. Uh, Marshal Ney fell victim to that. If I'm a That's, soldier, like if I'm a soldier, like even if I'm Marshal Ney, like you fled the country, so I lied. I lined myself with who was running the country. It was Napoleon. How can you accuse me of treason? You you left. Like I, it's just weird to me. Yeah, it, it is. But you know, um, revenge is not logical. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, Marshal Bruin was also assassinated. Uh, General Ramel was assassinated. Mm-hmm. The, the ultra-realists had won. I mean, we have elections in France in 1815, in August, and the ultra-realists win that election. And Louis is actually wary of them. You know, he, he doesn't trust those guys, the ultras, as they were called. Mm-hmm. He knows he needs their support, and he's un, he doesn't do much to to intervene or stop them. But he knows, and it, this, this caution will just grow with time. In 1815, we still have... He still likes them, if you want. Like he called them the the chambre introuvable or the infindable infindable cabinet because he couldn't have found a better man man to win the election. Right. They were ultras, you know. They wanted they wanted the Bourbon over anything. They wanted the king, the king, the king, and the king. So the government policy at this point is basically to find and exterminate the revolutionaries. And they have a very broad definition of what a revolutionary is or a Bonapartist is. You know, if you had on yourself any sign that you supported the emperor, you could be killed on the spot. You could be arrested. Right. If you would say, vive l'empereur in the street, you wouldn't end up in jail and maybe worse. Mm-hmm. So you have people uh, will find generals or other leaders like Brune, Ramel, and we'll just kill them, you know, mob killing people. Right. And then you have, quote unquote, the legal white terror with people being judged and executed in record time. Yeah. Uh, just like in the days of Robespierre. Yeah. So for people that condemned the revolutionaries, they certainly embraced some of their ways. Right. Uh, so, so I don't think it was a necessary evil. Uh, just like the terror, I mean, the terror in 1793, the, the known terror, 1793-94 with... Robespierre having the guillotine <laughs> run a, hundreds and even thousands of times in a couple of years, it was a radicalization, mm-hmm. a loss of control, an outgrowth of the revolution that was becoming bigger than anyone is expected. Right. It's, it's an horrible and shameful period in French history, but it was not premeditated. The white terror of 1815 was vengeance. Pure and simple. Right. So, so the king and his cronies, That's good they point. wanted to, yeah, they wanted to see the revolutionaries' blood flow in French cities after all these years of violence, and in the end, it was absolutely useless. Yeah. The the revolutionaries had no way to topple the restored monarchy. They they were not even trying, so they were killed, and life went on in the French monarchy. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about uh, Louis's, Louis' reign after 1815. I've read that he stepped back from everyday politics and kind of allowed his ministers and councils to handle most of that. But he maintained a centrist position throughout his life. He didn't want to be, like you said, an ultra royal. What was, um, I, I guess, France was just looking for peace at that point. What was his reign like? Yes, so exactly. You, 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 you said it right. He feared that if the ultra-royalists were too powerful, it would divide the country, it would risk a civil war, and maybe even another revolution in the long term. So during his last years, when he actually exercised some power, he did understand that if you oppress a people too strongly and for too long, you will eventually pay the price. Mm -hmm. So he put some space between himself and the government, and he favored, uh, you could say, conciliatory policy. Mm -hmm. So, and he has to deal, as I said, with the occupation of the country. So in 1818, with the Treaty of Aachen, uh, or Aix-la-Chapelle in French, the Allies leave France and she's registered as a major and sovereign power. Mm -hmm. So from then on, his government will work to address the country's dire economical situation after decades of almost country's warfare. Yeah. And we will try to maintain that equilibrium. He won't. You know, he doesn't want the boat to topple. Yeah. He wants to keep France afloat. He doesn't want to make too much noise. As I, as you said, he's more centrist than anything at this point. Yeah. But also the, the prime is that the king's health also made him incapable of governing and fighting the ultras in, the, in his last years, you know. And it was made uh, worse that they were supported by the Comte d'Artois. And the Comte d'Artois is the king's brother, Charles. Sure. Charles X. Well, I do like that he was um, a bit more lenient with the uh, marshals. I think Marshal Soult was allowed to return after 1819. It seems like he was more open to uh, uh, letting some of Napoleon's ex-soldiers and officers back into the country after that. Yes, yes. After, uh, you know, two, three years or maybe you know, maybe within five years after Waterloo, they recognized first that these people were fighting for France. Right. Uh, they, they, they were French soldiers uh, and they they did what they think was good for the country, mm -hmm. uh, which was something that a king should appreciate. Mm -hmm. And also, as you said, at this point, he wanted peace and continuity and stability. He doesn't want to open old wounds yet again. Right. Well, he only gets to really reign for... Um... Gosh, less than a decade, nine years. Uh, he passes in 1824, having long suffered from obesity, gout, and gangrene. What do you think Louis XVIII's legacy is? It's so, it's such a weird, weird reign as king. Uh, it's probably, there's never been anything quite like it. No, it's a very strange life. And, you know, he was nicknamed Cochon 18, which means pig 18. Uh, and also le roi fauteuil, which means the chair king, <laughs> because he could not move given his very poor health. Yeah. So even though he wasn't that old, I mean, he died at 68. Um, even the symbols failed him. He was not crowned in uh, crowned in Reims, like all the French monarchs before him, mm -hmm. but his brother Charles X will do it though. So he never completely governed, I would say. He was manipulated either by Talleyrand, Fouché, or his own brother. Yeah. And he thought he was putting them in charge, but in fact, they were taking advantage of him. Right. Not always, but often. Mm -hmm. Charles was more, more cruel than Louis, but he was also, I would say, I think, smarter. And 
Louis legacy, I mean, poor guy, is that he represents everything wrong with the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine, I mean, I'm caricaturing here, but that's the idea we have of him. A useless, obese, sick, and wretched man who considers himself to be above the people he rules just because he was born grandson of a king. Right. I mean, it's everything you could despise about the monarchy. I mean, to this day, Louis XVIII is made fun of in French movies and novels. Uh, Victor Hugo, for example, made him made fun of him repeatedly, including in Les Misérables, when he talks yeah. about him. He, he, unlike his brother Charles, he never had a, a, a revolution toppled. Well, I guess Napoleon, but after that, he never had a revolution toppled. So no, I mean, I mean, for all his faults, as he, he was a moderate in in his heart, I don't think he, he was not an extremist. No, that's yeah. for sure, and he did, he did not sought uh, confrontation. Charles was. Charles was a pure reactionary in the pure sense of the word. He wanted to go back in 1789. Mm-hmm. He wanted, I mean, that's what, in 1830, that's where he will go down. I mean, remove the liberty of the press and other things like that. You know, that he had it coming. Right. And for Louis, just also something that is not easy for his legacy is that he represents the victory of the Allies, the victory of the reactionary forces in Europe yeah. against the French revolutionaries. So even though he did nothing to actually help that victory come about, yeah, he took advantage of it and he became king and he ruled for almost 10 years. And also something that I find interesting with this character is that I think he represents France's own schizophrenia. The French, they want a democracy. They want freedom. Mm-hmm. They want revolutionary ideals. But they also crave a strong figure of government and they respect authority deeply mm-hmm. it's very paradoxical and a part of the french character especially since the revolution so louis in a way is a prime example of that uh, even though sadly for him nobody really wanted him on the throne yeah that's a good point that's good you know the the royalists they supported him because of his birthright and because they knew that they could maneuver him mm-hmm. the revolutionaries they despised him for because everything he stood for mm-hmm. i mean Poor man, really. I don't envy his life, and I certainly don't envy his legacy. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap up on Louis. Uh, just an interesting life. Like I said, unlike any other king probably in French history, uh, Louis Eighteenth. But uh, that was fantastic, my friend. Uh, you're most welcome. And he's certainly someone that we should know more about. He's often ignored, mm-hmm. just mentioned. You know, he's the king of the restoration, and that's yeah. about it. Yeah. And you know, most of his faults were not his fault in the sense that just the system he was born in. And maybe in other circumstances, it could have been a, a great man. We'll never know. Yeah. And in fairness to him, I mean, let's say Charles took over or even Marshall Bernadotte. I don't know if any of those other two would have done any better. Like, you know, they still are coming in on the shoulders of foreign powers. So they, they, yes. Any, any of those would have been despised by the uh, French people and French soldiers. Yeah, becoming French ruler in 1814 or 15, whoever you are, is probably the worst job you could get <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in Europe yeah. anyway. That's a can't-win job right there. Yeah, no, sure. there you go. Well, I thank you for that, my friend. Um, again, uh, Emmanuel's podcast, which I love, I recommend, uh, Lafayette, we are here, Lafayette Pod on Twitter. Uh, check out the website. Uh, where else can they find it? So you can go on lafayettepodcast.com. Okay. You can find the, the actual website or any, you know, 
uh, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, what have you. Uh, you just type Lafayette, we're here, you'll find me. I'm also present on social media, as you said, on Twitter, but on pretty much anywhere, you know, Blue Sky, Mastodon, yep. Meta, what have you. Oh, uh, yeah. I have a presence, you can find me easily. Yeah. Thank you for and, the Blue Sky uh, invite. That was nice. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I think it has a good future. Yeah, no, I, I'm enjoying it so far. But uh, I thank you for coming on the show and uh, we will talk soon. Merci, John.